The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good and his mercy endureth forever. He is a wonder. We should be awestruck by him. He is our wonderful counselor. He is our prince of peace. He is the one that is our king of kings and our lord of lords. I've searched all over and some of you may have as well, but there is nobody like him throughout the heavens and the earth. No love will be able to be sufficient as the love of Christ. No amount of money will be able to pay the debt that he has paid for the penalty of our sins. For the stripes that were upon him should always cause us to be struck in such a way, significant way, that we would desire to put ourselves there because he did not deserve to die for our sins. But he who knew no sin became sin in order for us to have eternal life. Everyone that believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life because he loved the world. He loved you and he knows you. If you believe that, won't you say amen? Amen. If you believe it, look at the next person next to you and say, he loves you. God is coming again, and what we have been talking about throughout this entire sermon series is his office, a threefold office dealing with the Christology of Jesus Christ. When we study Christ and who he is in a threefold office, we're studying who he is as prophet, which is in his wisdom and his word, as priest, which is in his sacrificial office and what he has offered as he has offered himself. You've already seen that he is worthy as a lamb who is slain as his priesthood. And then now we talk about his kingship. When you think about God's kingship, you have to think about it, the spiritual reality that's necessary to understand that he's come to rule and reign with power and authority. And when we know that he has come to rule and reign, it's not that he has come in order to bring a kingdom, but he's already acknowledged that his kingdom is not of what? This world. Many of us think that his kingdom is bearing it, it is coming, it is of this world. It is built with materialism, it is built with satisfaction, it's built with answered prayers. I was on the phone one time with a brother of mine and he was crying in tears because his household was struggling. He has a good job but he works too much. And then he also doesn't know how to tame his kid or keep his kids together and he feels as if everything is falling apart. But I think the encouraging thing that I understood from that conversation is he knew that God was still in control. If you believe that God is still in control, then you know that what you believe in and who you believe in is the king not of the United States of America. He's not the prime minister who we ought to bow down to. It's not the royal royal family that we ought to be awestruck about, but it is supposed to be this man named Jesus who lowered himself in such a way that he was born in a feeding trough. And as when we come to our text this morning, the context around that is to understand that these three, uh, not three, sorry, that's a misconception and we'll get to that, but these wise men have often, or, or what we learn is, they come a long way to worship a king. They've come a long way to worship a king. My question that I want you to just think about this morning is where have you come from and what do you give to this king? We look at Luke chapter 2, I mean Luke, Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. I want us to ponder as I read our text this morning starting at verse 1. 
Would you follow along with me with your Bible, your iPad, your phone? But please open God's word to read his word. Don't believe everything that Mike says. Amen, somebody. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and, he, and they and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you, find, when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that, had been, that, had, that they had seen when it rose went from them until, until they came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced greatly, exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Very word of the Lord, very word of God. Let me pray for us. God, we know that you're a king and you are coming again. We don't have to pretend that you have not come. And so, Jesus, I pray that you help us to know that you sit on the thrones of our hearts, that our minds should be held captive and be transformed continuously by the renewing of your spirit. And I pray, Jesus, that you help us to see your word in a special way, that we should never be tired of the nativity scene, but we should evermore be drawn to you because we know what you've done. And we see, Jesus, that you're the only one that can save us from the wrath, but most of all, from ourselves. For it is Jesus' mighty name that we pray, all God's people said together. I want to break this up into three scenes, verses 1 through 2. We will see that in this scene, the wise men have come to worship the king of the Jews. In scene 2, verses 3 through 8, we actually have see, we see the king, uh, or we see, we rejoice, excuse me. No, I'm, I misplaced myself. Uh, sorry. Herod fell threatened by the true king of, Jews, of the Jews, uh, which is 3 through 8, and then we see in verses 9 through 12, the rejoicing to the, to the true king who has come and will come again. 
when we look at the first few verses, I want you to notice that as the writer is bringing up the point, this point of contention, that in the days of King Herod is actually to remember that he was the ruler. But not just a ruler, but he was the king of the Jews is what the title was given. Though that he was not Jewish by ethnicity, he was actually deemed this. And so when, the, when he hears them come to worship, the one who is the king of the Jews, it caused this point of contention for him. But you also ought to recognize that the people that are in this scene, scene one, are the wise men. A couple misconceptions about the wise men is that it were three wise men. But in Eastern Christianity, it actually said that there were more than three wise men. There were possibly an entourage of 12 or more. And the misconception also is that these wise men were believers, that they had come to actually worship Jesus because they believed that Jesus was the king or the Messiah. That's not necessarily true. These wise men were actually magi, as what you will hear um, in other translations, and these wise men were astrologers or astronomers. Just like when you read Daniel chapter 2, Daniel was an astrologer, one who would interpret dreams, and they followed the star. They studied stars. That's exactly what they did. And so when you see these wise men coming to find the true king, it is because of their secular scholarship. These were scholars who actually were studying who Jesus, I mean, studying the stars and felt that there was the king of the Jews coming. And this is how Daniel, who was able to interpret the coming of Jesus, he did it through what? Dreams. Same thing when you look at chapter two, when you look at verse 12, what happens? What does God give the wise men not to go back? A dream. Don't, let, don't read over that in the text because it is important for us to understand that God does speak to people. He doesn't necessarily only speak to believers. He also speaks to pagans. And I would say, I would venture to say after much reading that these wise men were pagans. But yet I was, I, I, it is, it is, it is. Under, we should understand that they just not, they did not come from the east simply because they were following a star. They were actually in days travel coming to worship at the place that was Jerusalem. Say Jerusalem. What did you come to do in Jerusalem? Worship. And when you came to worship in Jerusalem, it was not, it should not be, it should not be, uh, we should not be confounded by the idea in which they would come to Jerusalem because they knew that if a king was somewhere, he would be where? In Jerusalem. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? We need to wake up. Just say amen, somebody. And so as they were coming to Jerusalem, you have to understand that what they were coming to do was come to worship at the place that they thought where the king was. These astrologers, these wise men, these scholars, these ones who studied deeply about dreams and interpretation were actually, they could be Iraqi or Iranian. Arabian individuals who, who come, and this is what I often, my, uh, talking to a buddy of mine, often struggle with is but when we in Western churches, after so long of, of, of worshiping and, 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 and these European churches worshiping, sometimes we can think that Christianity looks one way. One of my good friends had went to Israel. I have yet to have the privilege to go, but he came back. He's a pastor in St. Louis. He came back so enthusiastic because he said, I've seen people from the Middle, from the Middle, East, from the Middle East who will remind me that, no, you didn't find Christianity. 
nor is your worship the worship that is far superior. One of the contentions that I fall into sometimes is when I hear the language high worship. If, I, if there is high worship, then that means something, that means there is low worship. And oftentimes, high worship is contributed to European worship. And I think that that's a false ideology because there is no worship that is higher than the worship that we offer to the King Jesus. Whether you are in an uncivilized place where you're in the backwoods, in the jungle, worshiping Jesus, or if you are in a place where there is a high lectern and you're worshiping Jesus, no matter where you are, worship is high because of the King that you're worshiping. Amen, somebody. These wise men are going to a place, which is Jerusalem, to worship Jesus. And these men were reminding us that they were heading to Jerusalem because the king was there. And as they, were, and they, were, as they come to this place, I want you to understand that they have come because they knew that the king was born. So this guy, this star, helped them to understand where he was eventually. But now when we look at... <clears throat> or when we understand the significance of what they've been to, I want you to ask the question, why Bethlehem? Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? I do not know. Only thing that we could contribute to is the fact that Bethlehem was an unimportant place. It was a common place, but it was the place that where David was born. And we know that Jesus had come from the lineage of who? David. And so seeing that we can also add to ourselves, and this is what I would add when I was thinking, I was reading the text, why Bethlehem? And God, I believe, is reminding us that wherever my presence is, I will make anything important. Bethlehem is important because Jesus is there. Let me take a brief moment to help us to understand when you walk through those doors, I think we walk into a gym, but this becomes a far more important place because who's here? When we walk into this door and we send smiles or we, we greet one another, it is, we should be struck by the fact that the presence of God is in a place where we don't necessarily know is a sanctified place. It's sanctified because sanctified people are here. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? This means that you have to understand who you are, beloved. That if you come into this place lowly in heart, if you come into this place not understanding who you're worshiping, sometimes you will be distracted by not, not having enough money for your kids for Christmas or not missing or missing a paycheck or missing a meal or being distracted by what you won't get on the 25th, but not realizing the very thing that you will unwrap is Jesus. I was standing this past Tuesday at Nathan Street where Willie Baldwin, one of our members, is actually, uh, he ministers to several kids in the neighborhood that I live in, which is Binghampton. All of these kids will circle around, and I had the privilege of talking to them. Now, I'm horrible when, they talk, when it comes to talking to kids. I'm going to just admit, because I'm always trying to keep their attention. Much like a, with, with adults, I assume that I, I already have your attention. But some of y'all can remind me by nodding off that you don't, that I don't. But what they remind me of, instead of nodding off, is that they become restless. And so we're standing out in the cold, and I knew I had to wrap something just to keep their eyes focused. And so I wrapped this gift, and I put a Bible in a box. And the kids were asking me, what's in the gift? What is it for me? So immediately I knew I had them captivated by what was in the box. But what I put in the box was not toys. I didn't put in the box a surprise. I put in the box the Word of God. 
And unbeknownst to me, these children who were very smart and very wise said, I know what's in the box. I said, what's in the box? Because this is a gift that can transform all of your lives. This is a gift that can actually help all of us. This is a gift that's actually a gift that will allow you to understand and see something that goes far beyond you. This is a gift that all of us can share in. You don't have to divide it up. You all can have it in your hearts. This is a gift, one gift that will satisfy the needs of everybody. Anybody have a gift like that? The gift that I was referring to was God, his word. And the children guessed it immediately. And so it took my sermon all the way off ramp. <laughs> they figured it was a pastor. He got to have a Bible. He don't have no money. I said you was right. What we understand is, is that God Bethlehem, the house of bread, the one who has come, he brings fulfillment, and his fulfillment brings significance. If you are like a wise man, God has used you to come to this place, not because you were seeking him, but some of y'all not seeking him. You just stumbled in here, chasing somebody, trying to figure out your spiritual journey. But God has used your intellectual ability to ask questions in order for you to figure out who he is. You are trying to understand what is this distinction between subjective and objective truth. Millennials are leaving the church. New York Times just wrote another article to remind us how millennials are leaving the church on a daily basis. Why are millennials leaving the church? Because of the negativity with church people. Once again, I want us to understand that the very thing is, is that if we are running people off, then who are we? If nobody can come in this place and not feel the, the presence of God through the warmth of your hug, the presence of God through the warmth of your, your welcome, then who are we? If we're supposed to be abiding, last week when I taught Sunday school, I was asking the question of how do we live in a society where the tension is we're dealing with perishing life, but at the same time we have hope for eternal life in this hope. If we were to name the bars in this jail cell, which Zechariah has already reminded us we're prisoners of, what are we prisoners of? It's justice. What are we prisoners of? We're prisoners of hope. What are we prisoners of? We're prisoners of looking for something that is far beyond this society, far beyond this world. We're not prisoners of finding just the right job. We're not prisoners of finding the right spouse. We're not prisoners of finding, having enough money in our pockets. We're not prisoners of only having our fulfillment through our satisfaction on earth. We're prisoners because the fulfillment that goes beyond this earth is the very thing that roots us, grounds us, and strengthens us to continue to walk. And you, some of you, do not understand that fulfillment. Or you grew up hearing that fulfillment. You grew up in the church and you are tired of being in the church but can I say something to you if you would just see Jesus and be sympathetic with church people because what we have to understand beloved is that just like the wise men we're all on a journey scene two when we go to scene two Herod felt threatened the true king, by the true king of the Jews. Why was he troubled? When you look at verse 3, what does it say? Verse 3, it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Not only was Herod troubled, but all of Jerusalem was troubled. Now, why was he troubled? Because the fact what they told him is what we come to do, we've come to worship. If I were to ask you one thing of what did you come to do this morning, was it come to worship? 
Was it come to give or was it come to consume? In the, 20, in, the, in the 20th century church, in our church, in, our, in, in this century that we have, sometimes church is about do we have all of the things that are suitable for us to be a part of it? Do we have the most incredible nursery? Do we have the most fantastic youth program? Do we have the, the best coffee? Do we have the best seats to sit in? Do we have the, the most, the most, uh, be, the, the most beautiful worship or the most uh, wonderful preacher? Don't tell me that I'm great. I don't, I don't want to. I'm humbling myself. Amen, somebody. Okay. Do, 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 do we have all of, the, all of the things that I'm used to? to go into church, and some of y'all come from Pentecostal backgrounds and Baptist backgrounds and Presbyterian backgrounds and Lutheran. I don't, any Lutherans in here? I, don't, I didn't meet any. Okay, maybe some Lutherans, and then we have some Methodists in here. But what I've always come to realize is that the common thing that draws us together is the one faith that we have, but yet the things that distinguishes or divides us is the things that we come with our past. Do you come to worship or do you come to bring your, con- your, your consuming nature? Do you come to bring an offering to God? These wise men also were ones who were seen as wealthy because of their gifts. Gifts, Three gifts that they brought, and this is why the misconception is there, is that, oh, they brought three gifts. That must have been three people, not necessarily. The gifts that they brought were and it indicated that these men had wealth. So when they come to the king, This is when you have to ask yourself the question, why do they come to the king? How do they get to the courts of the king? Because they had to be men of substance. They had to be men of wealth. They had to have a court. And so him inviting them was not inviting them because they just came into Jerusalem. Invited them because they actually indicated that they were men of wealth. And maybe even royalty. So when they say we've come to worship and he felt trouble and all of Jerusalem felt trouble, you also have to understand who King Herod is. King Herod was one who at one point in time economically, justice-wise, uh, also military-wise, in various different ways was favored by the people. But yet after some time in ruling, he became a tyrant and the people feared him. So I want you to associate his troubledness and Jerusalem's trouble was associated together because if he was mad, then all of Jerusalem knew that they would suffer. How do we know that they would suffer? Because in verse 16 of chapter 2, what happened? He ruled that every child under two years old would be what? Killed. They knew cruelty and violence would come if this king felt threatened that his throne would be taken by a child. And we also can also take this fact that Jesus, when they found him, was about two years old because what did, they, what, did King, what did King Herod say? He wanted to kill all children under two years old. The assumption is they seen Jesus in a manger as soon as he popped out. That's not the assumption. That's, that's, not, the, that's not the case. And so when Herod says, I'm troubled, he pulls all people together. Give me the, give me the pastors Give me the chief priests, the pastors. Give me the teachers. Give me the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I need y'all to interpret Micah, what the prophet Micah said. I need y'all to tell me, where is this newborn king of the Jews? And they say, well, here it is in the prophecy that it will be in Bethlehem. And we're reading it right from what the prophet has written. And so you can also see that he consulted with religious scholars and teachers in order to figure out where Jesus was. Now, I want you to understand that his troubleness came not because he 
knew the true Messiah was coming, but he would lose his kingdom. He would lose his power. He is anxious and he is fearful because the very things that he thinks that he has in his grips are, lo- are, he, are, becoming to be, are being loosened because of the one they pronounce the king. We're going to scene three. But before we go to scene three, I want to deal with some stuff in us. Some of the things that I think that we deal with as people is the same thing that Herod deals with. Some of y'all are like, I'm not like Herod. I wouldn't kill two-year-old babies. If we are not aware of the deep sin in our hearts and we continue to compare ourselves to what we're not, what does that say about us? We are sinful, deprived individuals. We are in need of a savior. Sometimes, if you don't look in the mirror, your life will be about what somebody else hasn't done. But when you look in the mirror, there's nobody else in that mirror. God is working on you. And when you understand you see that person, sometimes you don't like the person that you see. Sometimes you don't understand the person that you see. You're frustrated. You're fearful. You're anxious. You're depressed. You're sad. You're angry. Because the person that you see is not satisfying. The promises that you made to yourself have not been met. The kingdom that you have personally, when Jesus comes into the scene, you feel that he threatens it. But can I tell you something, beloved? Is that even though that we see the demonic control in which Herod has, we have to see that there are demonic forces trying to control our minds. Trying to control our hearts by thinking that we have control. See, when it, th- this comes into reality for us because Jesus says he wants to sit on the thrones of our hearts as king. And he wants us to stop trusting in our own intuition. He wants us to stop trying to make our own insights personal. He wants us to stop. I'm going to just say this because I think this is where we are in this, in this century. He wants us to stop listening to everybody else and start reading who he is. Jesus wants us to stop falling for the pleasures of our hearts. And sometimes we fall by that, and I must admit it too, by trying to get things, buy things, earn respect from others, please others, trying to consistently make sure that I uphold something so that I can be accepted. Are you there? Jesus is saying that I reign king of your life because here it is, a spiritual reality that is deeply connected through sanctification and redemption. If our understanding of the office of his kingship is not tied to the fact of who he is as king and it's not a spiritual reality, we lose the notion and then he becomes a dictator. Dictators, prime ministers, presidents of the United States cannot do what this king does in your life. Policies can be changed, but hearts may not. 
Constitution, which we need 13th and 14th Amendment issue, can be changed. But yet, at the same time, if your heart isn't changed, the prime minister can't do it. The king of Congo can't do it. There's only one that can do that, and his name is Jesus. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? Why do we need to emphasize this sanctification and redemption in our theology? Because it is important. Sometimes we emphasize his providence without knowing that you got to be purified. Sometimes we emphasize that God is leading us, but not knowing that that spiritual reality of him leading us means that it is costly. We realize his kingship deals with our spirituality and, and not only our, pos- our position in our lives, this means that we have a responsibility. What I mean by that is God is providential and sovereign, but at the same time, you got to get up off your tail. That's, I'm going to put that in simple theology. Because getting up off your tail means that every day you have to deal with the issues of life and yet have a strong faith. If we do not have a strong faith and understanding the necessity of prayer, we will fall to the needs of our shortcomings and we will always blame it on somebody else. Oh, y'all, y'all, y'all see what I'm saying? Y'all picking up what I'm putting down. Y'all believe in the word of God? Because this is what, this is what I believe the Spirit does for us. I would call it AAA insurance. What, what happened? The Father, He arranged our salvation. The Son, He accomplished our salvation. The Spirit, He applies our salvation. And applying our salvation, this is better than any insurance that you ever have in your life. And applying our salvation, you have to read Romans 8. That's your homework. Because when you see that He sealed you with the good news and the gospel, what happens then is the Spirit begins to work in you. And so when the Bible talks about the groanings in society, the groanings that we should feel inwardly with all of creation, It's this groaning of sanctification and redemption that's molding and shaping you, making you who you are, changing your identity, not identifying you by your generational poverty, not identifying you because you have image managed issues, not identifying you because you just got a little change in your pocket, not identifying you by the thing that you drive, not identifying you by how much education you have. But the very application of the spirit begins to do this inward work that seals you, applies you and makes you look more like him over time so that you can be awestruck at his beauty coming to a place like Bethlehem or wherever it is and worship him and rejoice at the king because you know he's coming again. That's Romans 8.26. That's Romans 8.26 reminded us time and time again that what is happening in our hearts should change us. And what we know this is, Calvin helps us, that is a continuous dependence on Christ. Some of us have that, be, that do better theology or our own self-righteousness begins to tr- trigger our fears and our anxieties. It's easy for those, let me talk to y'all that are in ministry, for this to be y'all's thing. It's easy for you to come here every time or be in spaces where you're preaching, you're teaching, you're leading. You may be helping kids. You may be working at uh, some economic place. You may be working at a non-for-profit, helping all of these different people around you. But yet, here's the reality. You are trying to earn all that you can and be self-righteous. And all that you do is you forget that God is working on you. 
Y'all see what I'm saying? And some of us say, oh, well, you know what? I'm a doctor, and so what I do is I help people. I'm a nurse. My wife is a nurse. She's a wonderful work nurse. She's always helping me with my big toe. Sometimes I have problems with my big toe. I'm silly. I'm joking. That's it. But some of us have said, you know what? I want to be a doctor because I want to help people. Oh, I want to be a lawyer because I, I want to help you. I want to, I want to get this amount of money because I want to give it back to people. So I want to be in finance. And I want to, I want to make sure that as I, 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 as I help people, then I change their life. Can I tell you something? You are not going to change anybody if God ain't changed you. That is what it means to be a redemptive change agent, a vice, knowing that you are the one that is going to spaces and changing people and not knowing that you've got to go into a space that's supposed to already be ready, set for you. Christians, we are transforming things. Y'all always know what I say. Transform people, transform things. If you don't believe it, you don't believe that the work has happened in your heart, how can you operate on somebody knowing that you're doing a, a, a gospel work? How can you begin to help people in the justice system if you're not transformed? How can you teach kids who you know got trauma issues and you have not been worked on? You know you got problems in our political system, but yet you're hoping that somebody in the White House or somebody at the governor's house, somebody at City Hall are going to do these things. I'm not waiting on nobody to do these things. I'm trusting in his name. I'm trusting in Jesus. I know that he is the only one in the greatest policy, and he is the one that is campaigning to let us know that his soon coming is a coming that brings a kingdom that is not of this world. That is not of this world. Here we go, beloved. Scene three. Rejoice. The true king has come and will come again. Some of y'all don't believe that. I want you to notice something that these men who I believe are pagans who come to find Jesus, when they get the permission to go and find Jesus, they, this star arises. And when it comes up, it leads them. And some people will say whatever this star may, but it's, it's a celestial thing. We know it's out of out otherworldly. It's out of this world. And it leads them and it hovers right over the place where Jesus is with Mary. What do they do? They rejoice. They rejoice immediately. Exceeding with great joy is what the Bible says. But not only that, they fell down. Sometimes I think we need kneelers in our own church. I know that can be like some of y'all like, I don't want kneelers because I used to be Catholic and we used to be on those kneelers all day long. And the reason I say that is because sometimes... We're not bowing in our hearts, and we need a physical way to bow. My hope is that one day y'all come into this place and the presence of God saturates us in such a way that you can't even walk straight. That's my image of the wise men. That they see a two-year-old baby who cannot even speak to them. They begin to bow at the fact that this is one who will come and rescue, restore, and renew all things. It is his presence that changes things. It is them recognizing they're in the presence of a king. Do you recognize that you're in the presence of a king? Where have you come to worship? What have you come to do? Is this place about you or is it about Jesus? That's what I believe the wise men help us to understand. Because as they fall down, they said, we come to worship and we, done, we did the exact thing that we come to do. 
Today in the Western church, I believe we just take everything that we have as Christians for granted. We get Bibles. We got several of them. Take them for granted. Translations, several of them. Message, NLT, NIV, KJV, ESV, NIV, ABC, one, two, three. Formal translation equivalent, dynamic translation equivalent. There are people who do not have the entire Bible translated in their language. And when they get a page, I've talked to missionaries that have been in Africa in the jungle. They said when people get a page of the scriptures, they begin to weep. We got study Bibles. I just got Tony Evans' Bible. You need to get it if you don't have it. With notes in it that tell us how to read the Bible, and yet we have no heart to do so. Psalms 1 tells us to meditate on God's word day and night. Joshua chapter 1 tells us the same thing. Meditate on God's law day and night. You will be prosperous, be strong, and courageous. I find it funny that we oftentimes look to be strong and courageous by the things that we try to earn, by the things that we try to do, by the things that we, the, the credibility we try to have, the physique that we try to maintain. All of these different things are ways where we try to earn something. But the Bible is, we try to, uh, yes, be strong and courageous, but the Bible is saying that what we need to do is meditate on his word. There is wisdom. Do we come in here with an infectious desire to worship? Meaning that the person sitting next to us is encouraged to worship and broken down because you are focused in on the Lord. We have, we have, we taught our children to consume worship. That we only allow them to be a part in certain elements of our church, whether that be in Sunday school. I know it's hard to wake up, but Sister Tracy is doing a great job. Sister Rucker is doing a great job. Rebecca's doing a great job. The Fickers, all of them have helped our children. Do, or do, do we say, oh, you know what, I, I, I am going to teach my child to consume because I'm not going to let them be pastored. Let your children be pastored. They need spiritual leadership and guidance. All of us do. We cannot come into a place consuming. We have to come to a place giving. And this is what we see when they give frankincense and myrrh and they begin to worship because they give these gifts which indicate as I said earlier that they are men of wealth they give these gifts to him because they were gifts they would give to a king I remember seeing a video and some of us all seen it and it went viral when the Chinese church that was underground had received their Bibles it was unbelievable you would have thought that they received a Bugatti a wraith, the Louis Vuitton bag. You would have thought that they received something that was out of this world, but I watched them grab their Bibles, rub their Bibles, rub it against their face, hold it tight to them because for so long underground being persecuted, they could not read this nor did they have this. When I was working, I used to be a janitor. Some of y'all may not know. I used to be a janitor, and uh, I cleaned places. It was a place where Mike Shanahan owned, and it was a, <clears throat> it was a science place. And I, it was service master who I worked for, and I was in there cleaning. And I would always be frustrated. When I cleaned a bathroom and somebody came in and blew it up, 
Because, I, I mean, I take it. Serena, my wife would tell you, like, when I clean the bathroom, I take pride in cleaning the bathroom. I don't know what it, I'm shining. I'm, I'm making sure everything smells good. I'm taking time. I'm going to take four, four hours to clean the bathroom. Yeah, right. Amen. Amen. And there was a brother that I was working with who he was addicted to crack. And he was just kind of in rehab. He was trying to get his life together. And he didn't know the Lord. And I was, I was younger than he was. And this brother, I, I, I don't know what it was, but something that the Lord was doing in my life in the way that I was talking, he, he said, man, it sounds like you a believer. He said, but I ain't never read the Bible. In this phase of my life, I was still reading the King James. I had no recollection of Greek or Hebrew. And I thought that that was the closest thing to the original manuscripts, right? Uh, I thought that was the Septuagint or the Masoretic text. And I said to myself, well, I got the King James Bible. Let's sit and read when our breaks. And so I would read with this brother throwing our breaks. And I was in awe in how he, had, he was struck by who God was. I was in awe with the fact that he began, the things that he began to struggle with began to fall down. He began to adopt a life that was praiseworthy, thankful. He began to adopt a life that said that there was something greater. And what it said to me most of all, that he could not take the Lord for granted. And it taught me something that I could not take. What God has instilled in me for granted, I don't think that we can, beloved. Because if we understand who we're worshiping, then we will come into this place. We will look at Advent season, not just a season, but as a life-changing, as a life-changing event that will allow us to recognize who the true King is. And that's what the King of the Jews. That's what the uh, wise men taught us about who the King of the Jews is. And that's what this table teaches us. When you look at this table, you have to ask yourself, have I given my heart to Jesus? Have I given my all to him? Am I longing for him to come? Is he the one, is he the one that changed my life? Or is it just because my circumstances are different? Is he the one that will continuously transform me or am I conforming to society? This table does a work in our lives that help us to understand who he is in such a significant way that we should partake together knowing that he is one that will forever change us and we should long for him to come because he will with his kingdom. Amen, somebody. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you. We love you because you are one that reminds us that you're a great and mighty king, one who is wonderful who is strong and mighty, the one who always helps us when we are low at heart, we have no direction. You guide us much like you guide the wise men. You help us to worship you, and you use the things that are in secular society to lead us to you at times. And I pray that you lead people to that, Lord. And, Lord, I pray that you help us to know that when we call on your name, Emmanuel, there's an expectation that you're already with us. The invitation of who you are to come and be with us should be the very thing that changes us. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. All God's people said together. I would like to invite, if you need prayer, if you love prayer, to our community groups, our elders, deacons up, just to stand on the side, just a few of y'all. And if you need prayer, just come down. Uh, but let us continue to worship God in our giving.